Good morning, Bethany Baptist. My name is uh, Sam, and I am the youth director intern here at Bethany. It is a true privilege to just bring the word of God to you all of us this morning and, and uh, share of the insights and just the, the wonders of uh, psalms such as Psalm 22. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the 22nd Psalm, Psalm of David. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it is in page 416. There are a few things in this world more philosophized or written about than the topic of suffering. Everyone, every single human being that has ever been born, and even those unborn who feel pain, as has been proven, no matter how much Planned Parenthood and the abortion culture denies it, we all wonder at one point in our lives, why does life hurt? Others can only ask, why does life always hurt? Why did my neighbor hurt me? Why did this have to happen? Why them? Why me? Right? From toddlers to feeling pain to adults suffering loss, from scientists studying the brain's reaction in suffering to musicians writing songs and poems about heartbreak, loss, and death. The human is a rational being created in the image and likeness of God, seeks to reason with such experience. We seek to understand it. We seek to overcome it. We even seek to find a permanent remedy for it in our lives and in the lives of those around us to no lasting, long-lasting avail. Such was the case in a book written by a rabbi named Harold Kushner titled, When, Think, when Bad Things Happen to Good People. In the book, he describes his son's experience with constant suffering due to a genetic illness called progeria, which caused him to lose his hair, inability to thrive in life, and age faster than a healthy person. Eventually, Kushner's son passes away due to the illness, so he uses that experience uh, to think deeply about what it is, um, that's, uh, why it is that suffering happens. It happens not just to those who deserve it, but it also happens to good people, according to his standards of good people. Why do good people also suffer if they are good? Obviously, being a rabbi, Kushner tries to reconcile uh, this inevitable human experience to the goodness and righteousness of God. He again and again attempts to let God off the hook, uh, if you will, by explaining that God has zero control or other than allowing it to happen, over suffering. And though God does care about our misfortunes, Kushner argues that he can't prevent them from happening. Thus, we must find it in ourselves to overcome them and learn from them. Suffering, he concludes, helps the strong to finally find their strength and live full lives as they use their suffering to be better, to get ahead in life. Ultimately, for him, God is simply a shoulder to cry on without any real power to change our circumstances or provide a way of salvation from such experience. Rather, he knows 
God knows that we have it within ourselves to come out, to come out victorious, but it is up to us to do so. Biblical evidence, however, does not support such a view. In fact, it emphasizes our desperate need for someone to not just help us overcome it, but to carry us all the way through it. Scripture points not to ourselves as a source of power and strength to overcome suffering, but to a blessed Savior, a powerful Deliverer, and a faithful God. And what not better portion to see such truth than the book of the Psalms. The book of the Psalms is not, it's not just a collection of poems, sonnets, and Hebraic hymns, but reflections from the heart written by men whose lives were marked by utter joy and, yes, sometimes even utter suffering. They are beautiful, creative, and powerful rhythmic sayings that are meant to cause in us an awe for the object of their praises, thanksgivings, and supplications. They are meant to be used as we walk over mountains, mountains above as well as through valleys of shadow. They are meant to be sung in victory as well as defeat. They are for times of joy as well as times for season, uh, of suffering. The intent of each psalm is, is to reveal the majesty and beauty of God through all of life as we sing of his works, his wisdom, his love, and his holiness. And though some, of, some psalms lead us into the most despairing of circumstances experienced by all humans, they also lead us into the most exhilarating and joyful praises as we better see and know God himself and his grace for those who in his hands rest. That is especially the case with the psalm we are going to read today. Let's read Psalm 22. Verses 1 through 21 say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I, have, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you to deliver them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Many bulls, do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. 
But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the, from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I divided this text into two points. Uh, the first one is verses 1 through 21, and uh, that is the groans of the lonely servant. The groans of the lonely servant. This psalm is labeled by some as the psalm of the cross. This psalm was written by King David, and unlike many of his other psalms, we don't know the circumstances that led him to write in such a way. We know that Psalm 18 was written when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, from the hand of Saul. Of Psalm 51, we read that David wrote it when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. But of Psalm 22's background, there is no clear historical evidence of an experience in the life of the king that would provoke such suffering and questioning as we see in the first two verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? However, this is not to say that there was no event that caused him to write these cries of dereliction. Certainly, something caused David to feel abandoned, to not see God near him. Something led him to cry out by day and by night and to have unrest. Surely, you do not utter these words lightly. They are not meant to be just a hook to grab our attention, but a sincere plea for the Lord's deliverance and presence. The questions posed in verse 1 are not a doubtful inquiry to God's silence and apparent remoteness from David's suffering because he knew his Old Testament. He understood the consequences of Genesis 3, namely the separation between God and creature by sin and death. No longer were Adam and Eve welcome into God's garden where his presence dwelled because they had disobeyed. Sin was now their new nature. And their death, and death their new ultimate destination. David knew that sinners cannot dwell in the Lord's presence, nor do wicked stand before the throne of God. Psalm 7:11 says, "God is a righteous judge, a God who displays His wrath every day." As a sinner, David experienced separation from God, because it is the human experience that, in times of despair. We feel an unending, unending chasm between us and our God. And verse 2 drives the point even further. As David cried by day and by night, and the only answer he received was silence. His soul was troubled. His mind was not at peace. God's silence was deafening to the point of deep despair and a feeling of abandonment that seemed to have no end. All he could feel was a pain so intense that though God is his God, as he makes clear in verse 1, he seems distant. He feels far. Forsakenness and suffering are the only companions of a man profoundly afflicted by physical and internal anguish. He finds no rest. But rather than complain about what he's experiencing, he cries even more to the God of his salvation. 
Verse 3 opens with a three-lettered word packing so much depth. If you read again, it says, Yet, he says, in spite, nevertheless, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. David is in the pit, and yet he remembers that God is still on his throne. He's still the object of Israel's praises. No wonder those who saw him mocked him, right? He cries, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. It is an unbelievable thing that a man going through the worst of sufferings cries out to a God that seems to not respond. Yet, says David, I still remember what you did. In you our ancestors put their trust. To you they cried out and you delivered them. What kind of trust is this, right? Hear how the words that David writes contrast what he feels. His nature, his sinful nature, would have him revile the Lord by repeating the words of the serpent in Genesis 3. Did God really say? But he did not hear the words of the serpent as Adam and Eve did in God's garden. He remembered God's word and his covenant promises. God delivers. God saves. God does not put to shame. Sometimes our feelings feel, seem disconnected from reality, don't they? I am sure that we have all experienced it. There are times when God feels very close. Times when we delight in prayer. We read scripture and it feels as if every uh, verse of blessing is about us. We are thriving. Our kids love us, our spouses are happy, our jobs are prosperous, our bodies are healthy. Everything is going our way. Our lives are a lively flower, lighting under a rain of blessings that we rightly attribute to the sovereign God. Eventually, however, eventually, the rain gives way to drought. And the vibrant red rose that once was our life withers, leaving only the thorns. Children no longer speaking to parents, spouses constantly failing, jobs ending, and bodies decaying. Does God feel as close then? Does he seem favorable toward us then? Didn't he promise deliverance? Didn't he say that if we lived according to his commandments that we'd receive the rewards promised by them? Didn't he say that he would be our God and that we would be his people? Isn't he holy? Isn't he righteous? Isn't he faithful through it all? The psalmist remembers that yes, he is. And how does he know? Because God is still sitting on his heavenly throne. He is unchanging. He is just. And he is faithful. Our feelings, our subjectivity, how we see suffering does not determine God's faithfulness. Rather, they reveal our sin and magnify his grace as he remains steadfast to his promises. And such is the case in Genesis 3, right? Where we learn that though sin and death entered creation, God promises a deliverer. In the garden, God reveals a plan that would find its fulfillment in the seed of the woman. However, her seed would be at odds, it would be at enmity with the seed 
of the serpent. He would crush the serpent's head, but the serpent would bruise his heel. There would be a war declared by the enemy to stop the plan of God to bring deliverance to his people through the work and suffering of the deliverer. And we can see uh, this better in verses 6 through 10, where it says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. More than David's recognition of his smallness by comparing himself to a worm, what stands out is the people's scorn and despise of him. They are mocking his trust of God, even though he is clearly in deep despair and suffering. They do not even stop to consider the cause of such cries. They don't care. They assume that he deserves such punishment, right? They approve by their derision. Whatever it is that brings the psalmist such pain, they approve. They shake their heads at the apparent foolishness of his dependence upon God to deliver him, to rescue him. In their insults, there is great temptation, probably for David, to side with them and despise the Lord. The people are asking this time, did God really say, David? Did God really say he would deliver you? Why are you crying to him? Why are you being such a fool? They are the seed of the serpent, attempting to make him curse his God and deny his faithfulness. In verse 9, we are met once more by the same three-lettered word used in verse 3. When David says, yet, again, yet, in spite of verses 6 through 8, you, Lord, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even on my mother's breast. From my birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. God watched over him when he was in his weakest state, a baby who still relied on his mother's breast for sustenance, a newborn that cannot do anything but is at the mercy of his mom. It was in this stage of life that David recounts that God kept him safe. God was faithful. Though just an infant, God became his God, and he became cherished by God. See the stark contrast between verses 6 through 8 and verses 9 through 10. While the people despised and scorned, the Lord cared and loved him from his mother's womb. And God was not about to abandon, abandon him now. Rather, the Lord would eventually establish a covenant that would let David know that from him would come one who would surely fulfill the promise in the garden. And there is a glory of this psalm. Notice how there is a crescendo in the experience of David's suffering, that rather than getting better, it gets worse and worse. In verse 11, again, he cries, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. The intensifying grief in his voice lets us know that what is to come is not something any man can withstand. The pictures described in the coming verses were, are gruesome, brutal, and evil. However, David is not describing his experience 
but that of his descendants' experience as promised by God. We realize, finally, that Psalm 22 is a divine and prophetic way, in a divine and prophetic way, is about Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as a star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David. It is in the cross, in the life of, and work of Christ, where we see this psalm fulfilled. It is in the suffering of our Lord where we can truly understand the utterances of David. Though his life was indeed marked by many sufferings, he says of Christ, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Peter in Acts 2 reveals this more clearly as he quotes the Psalms to prove that to those who crucified Jesus that he was indeed God's Messiah. It was Christ's experience of imminent death that would lead him to cry by day and night, ultimately ending in Gethsemane, where he, unlike his sleepy disciples, found no rest. It was he who would truly submit to his Father's will, knowing that he does save, he does deliver, and he does keep his promises. It was Jesus who for six hours would endure the insults and reproach of the people, not asking for his Father to avenge him, but to forgive them. It was Christ who his incarnation would empty himself of his glory and be at the mercy of the woman yet knowing that his Father would keep him safe. It was Christ who would experience abandonment from those who once called, whom he once called friends. In his suffering, surely, no one was there to help. Verses 12 through 18 are not just some gruesome details of torture, but the minute prophetic writings of the crucifixion and death of our Savior. As pointed out by a commentator, what were figurative expressions of David's suffering became literal sufferings of Jesus. The language in which David describes such suffering indicate a terrible and heinous act of violence that no man could withstand, both physically and psychologically. Depicted by beasts in the psalm, the enemies that surrounded the Lord were of all kinds. Christ was not just surrounded by scoffers, but by judges dictating his sentence, priests inciting to more violence, and soldiers carrying out the violence. Wherever he turned, he saw the perpetrators of his own pain. Yet, as we read in Matthew's record of Christ's quotation of this psalm, we know where our Lord's eyes were truly fixed. Though he was being poured out like water, though his heart was turned to wax, though they pierced his hands and feet and his bones were exposed from his flesh, though he would soon be laid down and taste death, his eyes looked heavenward where he would cry for deliverance, knowing that he had to die for the sins that were not his and pay with his life for those who could only wish him death. 
So unlike Kushner, the rabbi that wrote such a book and what many in the world believe of suffering, the view of Christ, the view that Christ had of suffering was not just a fatalistic what will be will be type of suffering, neither was it an opportunity to find his inner strength and come out of the suffering victorious, knowing that he would be a better him. In fact, verses 19 through 21 show us that the psalmist, alongside Christ, still sees God as his only deliverer, as his only rescuer, as his only savior. Even after the wild animals did with him as they pleased, even after they stripped him and divided all he had amongst themselves, even after he lay down his life, he plea, his plea would remain that the Lord would come to his aid and save him, that the Lord would finally answer him. And in Christ, we see that God indeed answered by raising Christ from the dead. Christians, when tragedy strikes, when sorrows surround and the mind fogs at the thought of suffering, when our feelings of despair disorient our compass leading to our Savior, on whom do we fall? To whom do we cry for deliverance? Are we quick to humble ourselves and plead for God's presence to be enough? Does our view of suffering bring us closer to the God of our salvation? Do we see the steps of Christ as we walk through the deepest seasons of illness, of loss, of death? Do we follow Him? Friend, if you are not a believer... Understand that the only way to truly understand suffering is to see Christ Jesus in Him crucified. It is to see that our suffering comes from the sin that indwells us in all mankind. Understand that the world can only offer temporal relief until the next time something bad happens to good people, even though, as one preacher said, that only happened once, and he volunteered. He volunteered so that you could see that in him you will find he who gave himself completely for those who repent and trust in his name alone for the forgiveness of their sins, thus freeing you not from temporal suffering but an eternal one. The suffering and death of Christ Jesus, as pointed out by the New Testament, was a sufficient sacrifice for the forgiveness of, of the sins of mankind. In the suffering of Christ, we see a submission to God that we cannot possibly achieve apart from Christ. And in his death, he pays the debt for sin that we cannot possibly pay. He truly is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as Isaiah prophesied. One who went before us and suffered the ultimate punishment for our sake, one who tasted complete abandonment, who groaned in total loneliness so that we could taste the embrace of our God. One who endured all sorts of insults to demonstrate to us through, that, that though the world hates him and his people, God loves and cherishes his people, his son, and he will do so forever. One who tasted death in the most excruciating way to purchase an assembly of people who would in him praise God's holy name forever. So let us read verses 22 through 31. 
I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him who has, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. It is hard to miss the eschatological nature of these verses, right? It is as if David has a screen before him where he can see the end, where he can see the great assembly, all those redeemed by the blood of Christ together to praise his name, to praise the blood of the Lamb, to praise the glory of the grace of God. In the first two verses, this psalm shows us uh, the post-garden experience, right? The post-garden experience that is a separation from God because of sin and death. But in verses 22 through 24, it shows us the post-suffering experience, if you will, of the psalmist. That is, trusting God even unto death for deliverance. Verse 24, it gives us an understanding of the nature of his trust. The psalmist knows that God can deliver in this life, and if not, he will not leave his people in the dust of death, but they will arise again. Unlike the scoffers who mocked the suffering of the psalmist, God delighted in him who was afflicted for the sake of his name. Notice what the one who just underwent suffering and death does. He says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. God indeed delivered. God indeed saved. The nature of this assembly is to proclaim the mighty works of God as displayed in the life of the afflicted one. He doesn't stop there. He calls his brothers and sisters and urges them to celebrate with him as God has listened to his cry for help. Hebrews 2, 10 through 12 says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. Once again, the psalm is revealed to be fulfilled in Christ. This time he is not surrounded by wild beasts. Instead, he rejoices and surrounds himself with his brothers and sisters. After his suffering and death, 
Christ's work is that of gathering God's people to himself to live forever in the great assembly of the Lord. It is here where we start seeing that suffering is no more. The experience is now that of abundance as the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will no longer cry cries of dereliction, but will call upon their God and he will always be there. It will also be a gathering of many nations, a picture of the spreading of God's work throughout all the ends of the earth, the blessing of Abraham finding its fulfillment in the work of Christ Jesus. And his rule will be that of justice. It will be that of peace. Such will be his dominion that the rich of the earth will be humbled and they will feast alongside the poor and they will worship together in the great and eternal assembly of the sons and daughters of God. For eternity will the generations of the earth remember what the Lord has done. Together they will praise the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, and together they will glorify the grace of Him who died and was raised to end the reign of sin and of death and of suffering. The theme of our praises will be that He has done it. Alongside Christ Jesus, we will cry, He indeed has done it. It is a marvelous thing to to think that, as John Piper put it well, the greatest suffering that ever was will be at the center of our worship and our wonder forever and ever. So church, it is in light of this wonderful truth that we gather. In spite of suffering, in spite of despair that certainly crouches behind sin, we come together to remember the words of our Lord. It is finished. His cry marks the beginning of a new life, a new covenant. It is a reminder that as John 16, 33 says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Scripture tells us that the greatest suffering was endured by Christ that we might consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. But we also know that we partake in his sufferings for now. As 1 Peter 4:13 through 16 says, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of God, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Church, seek the Lord in suffering. Seek his grace in need. Knowing that Christ has done it, he has done it indeed. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how glorious is majestic 
and majestic is your word as it reveals that from centuries before, Lord, you had a plan. And your plan was to redeem a people by the blood of your son, a son who volunteered himself, his life, his all, for the sake of sinners. Father, may we see that truth. May we apply it to our own sufferings. And may we call out to you as you will always be there. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.